Hey, good morning. Uh, if it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to personally welcome you uh, to be a part of Redemption Church. Uh, a little bit about redemption. We are one church and we have multiple congregations. And so uh, we have a congregation in Arcadia, Gateway, and Gilbert, and then here in Tempe. Uh, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And so our mission is very simple. We want to make disciples uh, who, in response to that truth, live their life for Jesus. Uh, one thing I do want to bring out to you guys in regards to our congregations is today is the official launch for redemption. Flagstaff. Uh, so yeah, it's really exciting. So some of you know Vince Garvey, some of you don't know Vince Garvey. Vince was here for a few years and was trained here, was raised here um, and with Redemption Tempe. And then him and his wife, Verity, they took a few people up to Flagstaff. And it has been amazing to hear and to see and to witness what God is doing there in Flagstaff. And so uh, they had no idea that they would launch this fast. In fact, Vince thought that they would launch at the beginning of next year in 2013. But uh, they've been there for, for a few months now and they're gathering anywhere from 60 to 80 people there. And uh, God's been really faithful to them. And so they're going to be able to launch today uh, as a congregation of, of, Redemption, of Redemption Church. And so uh, we'll just be praying for them, be uh, praying uh, for Vince as well as his team. A few announcements that I have, uh, actually just a couple. One, this Wednesday and then the following Wednesday, we have a two-week class. Uh, that's this Wednesday here, 6.30 to 8 p.m. And the class is titled Sent. Um, the class is, in essence, Jim Mullins will be teaching us how to share the gospel to people in our workplace how to share the gospel to people in our neighborhood, and also how to live out the gospel. So proclamation, how we talk about Jesus, and demonstration, how we live it out in the workplace, the marketplace, and school, and so forth. And so um, if you have always wanted to learn or be equipped how to share the gospel and what it really means to be and live out a gospel-centered life, I highly recommend you take this class. It's going to be a great class. Um, several people have already signed up. Uh, there's still room, and there's also room for child care. And so if this is a class that you want to take, and um, um, feel free to sign up at the Facebook page at Redemption Tempe on Facebook, or you can stop at the Connect Desk on your way out and let those guys know, and they'll be able to sign you up uh, and be able to provide childcare for you as well. Uh, last announcement, we mentioned this last week, is the first Sunday of November, we are changing our service times only in the morning. The first Sunday of November. That's November 4th. We will not meet at 10 o'clock. We will have two service times at 9 a.m. as well as 1045. So 9 a.m., 1045, the first Sunday of November. I'll make sure to keep reminding you guys until we get there. I uh, just want to make sure that no one shows up here at 10. Um, if you do, it'd be right between the services. So we hope to see you at 9 a.m. or 1045. Again, um, because we're going to two services, we do need help and volunteers. And so if you've been looking for opportunity to serve, uh, we have opportunities for you to serve in ways of greeting, working the connect desk, handing out Bibles, serving in children's ministry, holding communion, being on the prayer team. There's, there's uh, numerous ways in which you can serve and to help us facilitate uh, services to bless the people that are here. So if, that, if that's something you want to do, take that information card, uh, fill out your name, and your email address, and then one of the guys will be able to get back to you. Um, you can drop that information card and the offering boxes, which are located in the back by the doors. So I have for our time of announcements. Will you guys take your Bibles out and meet me in First Peter? First uh, Peter chapter two. We got a great deal of scripture this morning to walk through. It's verses thirteen through twenty-five. Um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and please keep it raised high. Uh, one of the guys will be able to get you a copy uh, of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we say this every week, but if you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible, take the copy that we have. Um, we, we want you to have a copy and keep it for yourself. Um, but if you do own one, but you forgot it, go ahead and raise your hand and just put it back on the shelf on your way, on your way out. 
First Peter, we have been walking. This is week six of First Peter. Um, Peter has, has been addressing a people in suffering, um, people who are suffering because of their faith. And the suffering that they were experiencing at, at this moment was a suffering that came because, because they, they, they believed in Jesus. And they were, they were walking with Jesus. Um, the suffering wasn't physical just yet. Um, the suffering was way more social, that they were being outcast. People were suspicious of the Christian language. And so Peter, or the, the Christian um, relationship with the Lord. So Peter writes this letter to address them how to live in a world that does not honor God. Um, and so far, it's been, it's been really good. It's been the gospel. It's been how in Christ Jesus we've been freed from sin. How in Christ Jesus we have a hope that's laid up for us in heaven. How in Christ Jesus we've been made holy. Now our new identity as God's children, we can live out the holy life by, by grace. And then last week, we wrapped it up and Peter began to transition from what God has done to now what we do in response to the gospel. Um, in other words, how we live out Christian ethics. And so in verse 12, he said, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And so Peter turns a corner and saying, the way that you live, um, not just what you say about Jesus, but the way that you demonstrate your life of faith, it matters because God did not just save you and rip you out of this world, but he left us here uh, to be particular men, particular women, in particular places and cities, um, in particular vocations, to be able to be a light to his name. And last week I said that the next two weeks were going to be really hard for us. I know personally for me it's going to be really hard because we're talking about two things in our culture right now are very hard. And that is the ideal of submission. Um, submission is not something um, in our culture that we, we love. Um, it's something that we'll do um, if someone has authority, but it's not something we look to and go, that's what it means to be a Christian is to have a submissive spirit. Um, next week, we're going to talk about submission and the roles of men and women within marriage, which is really fun um, to talk about, right? Um, so th- these, are, these are hard things for both Christians and non-Christians. And so um, I'm thankful that when we preach through the books of the Bible, that we have to come up with topics like this. In fact, this morning, one of the topics that comes up is slavery. Peter mentioned slavery. And, and that's, that's a topic for many people who do not believe in Jesus, and even those of us who do. Go, why, why didn't the Bible say to just stop slavery? Why did it just give us instructions within slavery? Um, Peter lays out what I, I would call here um, what it means to follow Jesus in a very, very real, hard way. And so three things we're going to look at in, in the, over these several verses this morning is, one, the posture of civility that Peter calls us to. The grace in suffering and the power of the cross. So the posture of civility, the grace in suffering, and the power of the cross. So before we get into God's word today, um, as always, let's just ask God's favor and his spirit to be with us. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the, the easiest thing for us to do, Father, is uh, to do what we want to do. And Lord, even though, Lord, coming to you by grace and understanding the forgiveness of sins, Lord, is nothing that we did. Walking the life that you've given us, following you, Lord, is something that we have to do. So we're thankful for your grace and we ask for more of it. We pray for your Holy Spirit as we understand God's word. God, I pray that you would illuminate the scripture that, as always, you would remove me that we may see Jesus. Lord, you've, you've been such a blessing to us in your word. And we, we, we trust your word that you will continue to. That your word does not return void. The life of the original listeners here, Lord, seems to be much harder than ours. And Lord, if there's anything that's inconsistent with our life and the gospel, we ask that you'd lead us to Jesus. You'd remind us. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Um, where I'm going to start today is where, where I want to finish. 
Uh, meaning I'm going to start today in pointing, pointing to the elements in front of me. Every, every week here at Redemption, we, we take communion. And one of the reasons why we take communion every week is that it's something for us to know. It's a means of grace, meaning it's a reminder of who we are in Christ Jesus. It's a reminder of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's a reminder that we've been forgiven uh, of our sins. But it's also a reminder to us um, that we follow Jesus. When Jesus instituted what is known as the Lord's Supper, that night, he had not gone to the cross yet. But when he, when he sat down with his disciples, he says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Meaning, this is my body. When he took the bread and he says, my body will be broken. And he says, he took the wine and he says, this will represent, this will be my blood. My blood will be shed. At that moment, the disciples did not understand. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew the very life that he, would, that he had to live. He knew it came to the very end of his life here on earth that it would end up on the cross. And that Jesus himself would bleed, that Jesus himself would be murdered, that Jesus himself would be crucified. And the picture of the cross to us, an understanding of the cross, does not only redeem us and draws us near to Jesus, but it is also an illustration of what it means to follow Jesus. I'm convinced now, especially for us in our culture, is that we love the the teaching of grace that God himself did everything in means of our salvation. That all we have to do is believe in Jesus and now he and himself bore our sins. And yet we forget the other side of grace is now that he's called us to himself that we too now follow a suffering savior. And when you read through the scriptures in the New Testament and you hear the words of Jesus and you hear the words of the apostle Paul or James or the writer of Hebrews or especially Peter. When he talks to Christians, he tells them in this life you will suffer. And there will be certain things about Jesus' teachings. There will be certain things about the Bible that will be hard for you to swallow and to digest. I'm reminded of Jesus when he's talking to his disciples in in John chapter 6. And he tells them um, that they must eat of his body and drink of his blood. And people looked at him like, this is weird. And then people said, this teaching is too hard. I'm out of here. And he looked at his disciples and he says, now are you ready? Are you going to follow me still or are you going to leave? Meaning discipleship is something that we follow a suffering Savior. So therefore, we should expect in following Jesus, if we follow Jesus faithfully, according to the scripture, led by the Spirit, that we will suffer. And that we will suffer if we live out a unique, um, honest, faithful life. That's the lifestyle that first century Christians are living. That's the lifestyle of the people that Peter writes to are living, that they're following Jesus. And Peter now writes to them, I believe, addressing them in suffering, Um, knowing that they're about to suffer, knowing that they are suffering. And just to give you a glimpse of what I mean is at this point in time, Nero is the emperor. Now, years after this letter, not too much longer, um, what historians would say is this same Nero is the same one that would kill Peter. The same Nero is the same Nero that will take Christians and, and as a means of celebration of a party, would dip them um, and, um, and burn them for lights. The, the same Nero, um, after the fire in Rome, blamed Christians, and the same Nero killed Christians. And so Peter writes this letter, inspired by God, getting Christians to be prepared for the suffering that they're experiencing now and the suffering that they will experience. And that, that's not to say that that's what's going to happen to us, but... It is inevitable, as Paul says to to Timothy, that if we desire to live a godly life, we will suffer. And so Peter now, transitioning to talking about this letter, he talks about um, essentially two different people groups that will probably suffer most within this culture. People who were at the lowest of the totem pole, and that was women in the Roman culture, as well as slaves. Women and slaves. And so in the, the next few verses here, um, he addresses those two. Now, next week, we'll get, to, we'll get to, the, to women. But here, he addresses everybody, 
and then he gets to slaves. So before we get into the slavery part, um, we'll talk first about the posture that we need to have as civil people, as Christians. The witness that we need to have in our public life. Peter starts off at verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put the silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Peter starts off by saying, he's continuing saying from verse 12, um, from previous, last week, is that the way that we will be witnesses, remember, Peter is not just saying this is how you handle suffering, but this is how you witness to the lordship, to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That now you are the hands and feet of Jesus. And therefore, in the culture, in the society that you live in, he says, be subject. Or if you have a translation that says, be in full submission. The the Greek language there is that of a um, a soldier lining up underneath the authority of his, his master. He's saying to every single person in Christ Jesus that we should be submissive people. And the submission that the Bible talks about, the submission of of gospel submission is different than submission of this world. Here's what I mean. Um, We have people that we submit to in this world. Um, Meaning naturally a worldly submission will submit only if you have authority. Meaning if you are better than me, um, if you are my boss, if you are my coach, okay, I will submit to you up until a point. And so the goal then is to decrease those who are above you and increase those who are below you. Because the more that you can climb up whatever ladder that you have, whether it's in a corporation or organization, um, in a family, whatever you think it is, if you can get to the top, therefore you don't have to submit to anybody. Um, That's not gospel submission. Gospel submission is an understanding that we submit to all people, not just those in authority. And so as one writer would say, it's not just authority, but it's also priority. Meaning there is a posture, there is a spirit of submission that every single person who believes in Jesus should carry. Now, I should say this, that doesn't mean weak. Nowhere in the Bible, either in marriage or in culture, that when it talks about submission, is it out of a position of weakness. In fact, most of the time when submission is used, it's used in light of the Holy Spirit, even when it talks to women. And and the, the, the role there is a position of strength. And so the strength that we have is the strength that we draw from the grace of God and therefore understanding that the kingdom of God has come, but it's a subversive kingdom. And so in that, we have our power and our strength drawn from our Savior, Jesus Christ, and therefore we can line up under whoever it is that God places around us. The Christian just doesn't submit to those in authority. There's mutual submission within the body. There's mutual submission even in marriage, even though the husband is the head. There's mutual submission around one another. We submit to people who are Christian and people who are not Christian, to those who are godly and those who are ungodly. That's what Peter is saying. And, and he's saying this in first century Rome when, when their, their leader was a dictator. Their leader ran things. Their leader ultimately, as I said before, is going to kill them, is going to kill Christians. And, and what Peter says is submit. That, that, that's hard teaching. He goes on to say this, not just to the emperor, supreme, verse 14, or to the governor sent by him. Meaning there's a broad application here where there's not just political submission, but there's a broad application of whoever's over you. So to your teacher, to your coach, from the president of the United States to the president of the PTA, whoever it is that's, that's, that's ahead of you, there's a submission there. And again, the gospel submission is the reason why we mutually submit is because first and foremost, we submit to God. And therefore, in submitting to God, we consider the interest of others as, as more important than our own. So we listen. Uh, there, there's a care there because we're, we're following our Savior, Jesus. Um, Peter gives something here to um, a role of government. He says, the governor is sent by the governor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Meaning, these are God's servants. 
um, that even though they could be Christian or not, that God is using them. And so if you do evil, the role of government is come to punish you. Um, if you do good, the role of government to, is to reward you. We, we saw this when we looked at the life of Joseph, and we saw this when we looked at the life of Daniel. Both of those guys lived in areas where they were submissive to their kings. Um, when they did good, good things happened to them. doesn't mean it's always going to happen that way. And if they did bad, even if they were wrongly accused of doing bad, bad things happened. It's the same way here. Um, submission is something biblically that's internal. There's a spirit. It's not something that's motivated by externals. Here's what I mean. We will submit when it's motivated by externals. Um, the other day, confession here, I got a ticket. It wasn't my fault, though, but I got a ticket, all right? And, and, and when I got, and now that I have gotten this ticket driving up here on, on McClintock, um, I thought it was, uh, I got a ticket. I should have been going to the speed limit, right? But I thought the speed limit was lower than what it was, higher than what it was, all right? <laughs> Let me get this straight, all right? So, and, and now when I drive there, I look around for cops. Why? If there's a cop there, I'll slow down. If the cop's not there, right? I mean, that's, there's, there's this, that's external. That's, that's not. That's just obeying the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. Um, what I should do, given that I'm a Christian and a pastor, um, is that I, I should obey out of delight and joy, whether the cop's there or not. Now, that's a silly illustration, um, and huge fine, but a silly illustration is, 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 the, is the sense of that's, that's the way worldly submission looks like. I'm going to do it only because I have to, whereas that godly submission is always out of gratitude to who we are in Christ Jesus. P- Peter is trying to get that point of cross to his group, and he says, listen, government does have a role. And here's why we should be submissive. He gives us a why. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And this is the same thing that he said in verse 12. He's saying, live a certain way so that when people say the bad things about you, they go, well, maybe we weren't true. Um, again, in this culture, people were suspicious about Christianity. They wanted to know, do they care about the social order? Do they care about life around here? Are they only in it for themselves? And, and last week, we talked about how Peter does not give us the freedom, does not give us the call to be on the extremes. Uh, one extreme is to completely separate ourselves from culture and of our own little um, community of Christian people. We only do business with Christian people. We only talk to Christian people, um, and therefore we separate ourselves from everything else. Or the flip side would be assimilation, over-assimilation, where everything that we have, the doctrines, the beliefs that we have, are watered down that we don't look anything different than the culture. But what he calls us to is to live a life of grace, which is much harder because we have to submit and trust in the Spirit of Christ. And and, and now he's saying, if you live out this posture of civility where you care about, and as Paul says, you pray for those who are in your uh, your authority, uh, you pray for those who are are your presidents and your governors and your mayors, uh, city officials, if you pray for those people, he says, it will put um, silence to the foolish people around you. Meaning people who don't understand or ignorant about Christianity, they would see our conduct. This is reminiscent of Jesus' teaching telling us that we are salt in this world and that we are light um, and this happens by our conduct. I, in our culture, especially now, this is a fitting talking about submitting to authority given the fact that there's an election coming up here. I don't know if you guys have heard there's an election coming up here pretty soon. And, um, and there's people on both sides in this room. I get it. I get your emails. All right? And so there, 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 there is, um, I believe the world around us is looking at Christians not and suspicion in the same way that the, the original audience had. I think when they watch us, especially during political time, they want to see how we bicker between each other. 
They want to see how we bicker and how we will divide, how we will say we both believe in Jesus, so say we believe in the gospel, we all come to the communion table, we love each other, there's fellowship, we'll eat together. And then when it starts talking about politics, Christians get just as angry with other Christians as people who are not Christians. And everyone else is looking at, you don't even get along. Um, there, honestly, there are certain parties that I'm with, um, I shouldn't say parties, certain people that I'm with and I eat with, and they, I hear them rip the conservative right, evangelical conservative right. How could they do that? They're so insensitive. They're monsters. They're monsters. They don't care about the poor, right? Um, there's no way they could be Christians. And on this side, you can be with people, uh, conservative Christians. I'm sure you guys have never met any of them. Um, that on this side is that, that would go, there's no way someone could be a liberal. There's no way someone could be a Democrat and be a Christian. And so you have these two parties, um, Christians, who now, for some reason, have taken the gospel, and the gospel is not subservient to everything else, but the gospel is just tacked on um, to whatever our political parties are. And don't get me wrong, I think we should engage politics, and you should vote. I'm just saying, we cannot say, this is who you should vote for, and if you don't, you're not a Christian. Um, This is a problem. My unbelieving friends, they think it's hilarious how Christians act, and they go against each other. We, We need to be okay with the fact um, having a posture of civility is not just with those who are, are around us who are not Christian, um, but even to those of us who are Christian. That, that the Christian faith centers around Jesus Christ. It, it centers around Jesus and Jesus alone, the shed blood of Jesus. Now, will people fall to the right or the left? Absolutely. So, so what's really going to be the telltale is whoever becomes president, um, no matter who it is, how we respond. I was listening to someone who was much older than I am say that one, one of the things they remember growing up is that no matter who the president was, it was my president and our president, even if it wasn't the president that I voted for. And now, if it's the president, it's, if it's the president I voted for, he or she is my president. Um, but if it's not, then it's the president of the country. Um, and he was talking how the whole idea of submission, especially in the church, of just to authority, is something that's lost. P- Peter is saying... As a witness, there's, there's a way that we could, be, we could agree to disagree, and yet we still have to center around Jesus. And if Christians would stop bellyaching and arguing um, over political things, are, are, is arguing okay to a degree? But when it comes to a point where there's a divide, even within the faith, we're killing ourselves. And we're killing our witness. Um, Peter, Peter, Peter calls us to have a posture of civility. That's who you voted for? Okay, I think you're an idiot. But I love you, right? That's kind of the, 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 the picture there is a sense of loving people through it and even loving those who are unjust, submitting to those who are ungodly. Um, that's the posture that we have. And he says this, uh, continuing in verse seven, 16, he says, live as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says, you're free. You're free, and when the Bible talks about freedom, it's freedom from sin. It's freedom from the guilt of sin. It's freedom from the impossible, the impossibility of trying to earn your salvation. You're free, but the way that you express that freedom, it's a paradox here. The way that you express that freedom, Peter says, is by coming, becoming a slave to God. When it says servant there, that's bond servant. So the way that you express freedom, true freedom, to have the true ability to choose, or the true ability to enjoy to do what you want to do is, is actually by becoming a servant of God. And not a servant of this world or the cultural assumptions of this world. And that's hard. That's really hard. And Peter says, use that freedom that way. And he wraps up this whole point to saying, here is the posture of civility. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. He says, honor everyone. Everyone who you talk to, believer or not believer. Honor them. Love them. Care for them. 
and honor the brotherhood, meaning there should be a special relationship between those who do believe in Jesus. And he says, fear God, just fear God. And then, you know what, whoever the emperor is, in our case, whoever the president is, whoever is our authority, we honor them. And that's, he said, that in itself will be a witness. Now, that to me, not that hard um, for us to love those around us. The, the next part where he talks about is grace and suffering is when it gets harder. It gets harder because he calls us to do something that just doesn't seem um, something that's consistent with the way that we naturally live our lives. But before we get into the grace of suffering, we have to unpack this first word in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all the respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, that word servants there, um, if there's been, when I became a Christian, there there were two things that really, really were hard for me. Um, One is the ideal of slavery. Um, and that Christians own slaves in our country and things like that, um, and also the min- minimum roles, which we'll get to next week. Um, but the word servants there, um, if you have an NIV or a different translation, it, it might say slaves, and this is different than the word servants in the verse previous, or two verses previous in verse 16. That's bond servants. But the word servants here just means slaves. And so when we, what happens is there's been two camps when it comes to this. There have been, when I grew up, there were African-American men who were very, very confident that Christianity was the white man's religion. Um, I didn't grow up in the 60s, but I know that this was a big deal in the 60s, especially with the nation of Islam, which were black Muslims. And that Christianity was a white man's religion because of verses like this. Um, because the issue was, is that they interpreted this verse through the culture that was around them instead of understanding the context. But on the flip side, you had white evangelicals, and even today, that will, that will miss over this because of some sort of um, what we call white guilt, that they don't want to teach slavery, and somehow that the Bible taught slavery, because again, they were taking um, a cultural understanding, our cultural understanding of Western slavery, and reading to the text, therefore they skip over it. But none of them's dealing with the context of the text. I think the best thing for us to do is always in reading any scripture is what is the context? What did this mean? So, so let, let me try to um, spend some time breaking that down first. Um, when it comes to slavery. First, we have to deal with slavery at a global, a global level before we just get to the West. Um, at a global level, there's, there's a guy named Thomas Sowell, who I don't think is a, is a Christian or not, but he writes about this extensively. And the one thing that he talks about is up until the 19th century, everyone had slaves. Everyone. Um, black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people, everyone had slaves. You had people in Africa, Africans who had other Africans as slaves. And so no, no culture, no country is exempt from slavery. However, no culture and no country um, outside of the United States, um, as well as Europe, um, has, has had as much issues with it. And so one, we have to understand that. And then we also have to understand um, slavery, slavery for us here. It is worth saying it. Um, slavery in the West was not like slavery globally. Um, slavery globally happened. It was cross-race. It was cross-cultural. It was cross-class. Meaning slave, there was a spectrum of slaves. There were slaves who were rich and there were slaves who were poor. Um, slavery was something that would be, you would become a slave as a spoil of a war. Much like in the Bible when we see that David and Goliath, if David would have lost that battle, the, the Israelites would have become slaves to the Philistines um, in that sense. Um, also, slavery was not permanent, um, that you were able to purchase your freedom. Now, when it comes to Europe and America, our slavery was different because our slavery in itself started with colonialism. So what that meant is we needed people to work. Um, I say we very loosely. Um, Americans needed, needed, needed people to, to, to work. And so we, um, we went to West Africa and got slaves. So it was first uh, racially motivated. 
Um, and there was absolutely no thought at all that you would ever be able to earn your freedom, that you would just be a slave forever. Um, that you would be a slave for the, your entire life. That was the purpose of it. That slaves in themselves were not even considered to be fully human. And so that, and, and that with that understanding of looking at slavery, which every one of us in this room looks at and go, that was just absolutely wrong. I mean, in 2012, we can look at that now and go, that was, that was ridiculous. Um, that in itself, was, it, was, it was racism. It was all of those things. It was unjust. And we don't have that now. Although there's plenty of slaves, but not that type of slavery uh, due to race here in our country. But um, we take our culture into us when we read the Bible. As, as even though we say we shouldn't, we can't help but reading into it. In fact, there are plenty of people, even some of this in, room, in this room, that their objections with Christianity is that they look at the Bible and say, God himself is a moral monster. In fact, there's a book titled, Is God a Moral Monster? It's a good book, though. And, and talking about some of the things that we read in the Bible because our cultural lens is different than the original audience. In fact, my favorite, one of my favorite African-Americans is Fred, Frederick Douglass. And here's what he writes considering Christianity because of slavery. He says, I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the gross of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the library of the court and the heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with un- unutterable loathing with- when I contemplate the religious pomp and show. Therefore, um, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me, we have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries and cradle plunderers for the ch- for church members. He says, this, this, is, this is what happens when we, um, and many men in our country, um, Christian men, who I still believe that we'll see in heaven, misinterpreted the text. Now, this is not just about slavery. This is about life. If we don't understand the context of the Bible, it is, it's a very, very dangerous book when we misrepresent and misinterpret what God has to say. But that's no reason to ever get rid of Christianity. Um, there's no reason to get Christianity, get rid of Christianity because of the actions of its people. Even though Jesus himself says that the way that they will know us, the way they would know him is by our love. Um, the power of the gospel and the lifestyle of Jesus is the reason why we become Christians and it's the reason why we maintain and grow as Christians. That you and I, we will, we will have our own faults. You and I will have our own issues. It may not be as gross as the issues of uh, plenty of men and women in our country previous to us, but we'll have our issues. But just because of Christians got it wrong doesn't mean that's a reason to get a Christianity because even Frederick Douglass himself, here's what he follows up in the same breath. He says this, even though he hates that Christianity, he's able to separate the Christianity for those who misinterpret the scriptures from the Christianity of his precious Savior, Jesus. He says this, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. Meaning, there is a pure Christianity of Christ. And so we cannot read um, our understanding of um, antebellum, pre-war, Lincoln-era, southern slavery into the text. So now we come to the New Testament. What was slavery in the New Testament? So when Peter and when Paul, when they use this, this, this language, I mean, Colossians in First and Second Timothy, as well as in Ephesians, and they here in First Peter, what are they talking about? Well, in the Roman culture, first century, um, 80 to 90 percent of people were slaves. The way that you would describe this is that slaves could be better translated here, house slaves, 
meaning many of these men and women, they were hired out. They would, they were, there was a spectrum. There were some people who were slaves who were highly educated, more educated even than their owners. It's the reason why in Galatians, Paul makes the reference of a tutor teaching children. The house slave was the one who actually taught and instructed the children. Um, there was a spectrum of people who were rich, people who now became slaves for their own, their own reasons. Or they lost money. They were in debt. And so they, they hired themselves out. And slavery in the New Testament was never permanent. It was 7 to 15 years. Usually by the age of 30, you moved on. So slavery here was far more Paul and Peter taking the gospel into the economical realms. Now, hear me now. I'm not trying to paint it that it was great. There was still, there was a spectrum. There were still harsh realities. Um, In that culture, men and women did not treat slaves well. In fact, Aristotle himself said that they were inferior as well as women. And so what what the New Testament does is gives a countercultural perspective of what it means to be a woman in that culture and also what it means to be a slave. But understand this slavery in first century Roman culture um, was, was not minorities and nor was slaves the minority. They were actually the majority. We have to understand that lens when we come into it. Um, that it's, it's working for a bad boss. It's working for a bad company. Um, it's working for an unjust company that you can't get yourself out of. Um, and Peter is talking about how we now as a witness work. And so he's talking to, he's talking mainly to people who would suffer most in this day. Now, the other question would have is, um, why did he's not comprehensive? He only talks about slaves. He doesn't talk about slave masters. And he, doesn't, he talks about later just women, but really just gives one verse to husbands. Whereas that Paul, elsewhere, he gives both. And I think because Peter, in writing on suffering, is saying, who's going to suffer the most? And the people who are going to suffer the most are those with bad bosses and then women with husbands who are not Christians. That's what he talks about. So he continues that grace, um, the posture of civility, and then grace, um, that suffering is a means of grace. Verse, verse 18 now. Servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one suffers, uh, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter is saying to whoever your employer is, um, to whoever it is, to whoever it is that pays you, um, submit to them. That there's a sense here, he's saying, to good and gentle. All of us um, have had bad people above us. We've had bad bosses. Here's what he's saying. Don't get together with the other teachers in your, in your school. Uh, don't get together with the other men and women in your cubicle and just gossip about the leaders. I Meaning that's not the posture that we should have. Um, don't say because this particular employer um, or this particular company is unjust or they're bad or they don't pay me enough, I'm not going to do enough work. No, no, no. He's saying there should be a Christian work ethic that you should have because you are not primarily working for them, but you are working wholly unto the Lord. Um, that, what, what it causes to Christians, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, we should be the best employers and employees. Not just because of competency, but because of effort. Um, because we understand why we're there. That work in itself, nowhere here is just a means to make money to take care of your family. Now, don't get me wrong. You need to make money to take care of your family. But it's an opportunity for you to glorify God. Um, Peter says here again that this is, verse 19, he says, For this is a gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Some of you are grossly underpaid. And I know what you're thinking. Everyone here is saying, that's me. 
I am grossly underpaid. Probably not. <laughs> um, because the flip side of that is just a tangent here, is that most of our kids that get out of college, they, they want to just be rich immediately. Like, I can't get a job for $80,000 a year. You'll never get a job for that. Not you, right? I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? So some of us are underpaid. Some of us work so many hours. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic towards teachers because that was my major. I, I watch teachers and see that teachers, especially elementary teachers, um, give hours and hours and hours and hours. And, you know, I think they're grossly underpaid, but that's just one man's opinion. Hear me on that. It's one man's opinion. Um, some of you are working for people that have not paid you yet. It's amazing how many people I talk to that are part of startup companies and they're working for people. And it's like, I haven't got a check for three months and I'm still working. And they said they're going to pay me, but they haven't paid me yet. Um, there, whatever it is, there, there are, there are times where you will suffer injustice. And what Peter is saying is, um, not just do it with a smile and fake it till you make it. He's saying when one is mindful of the Lord and you suffer. Um, see, God himself is not just delighting in suffering like, oh, wow, that person's suffering. We got a kick out of that. No. He's saying we shouldn't just be in some sadistic way trying to suffer because somehow, we get, God, did you see that? No. He's saying when mindful of the Lord, meaning when you have a posture, when you have a spirit that you were trusting in Jesus, that you were looking to your Savior, you're realizing that your, your whole life is not built up into your vocation. But your whole life is in Christ Jesus now, and he expresses his love through you within your vocation. That there's a sense there where you're, you're looking to the cross, you're trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, that right there is a gracious thing. The language there is, that's grace. That God applauds that. Like, that's something that God looks at. And he looks favorable upon that. And he gives more grace to those who do it. So the more you do it, the more God himself continues to show you favor. Peter continues to talk about this, that grace and suffering. He says in verse 20, For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, and you endure. But if you, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He, he's saying, um, it's not that big of a deal that if you didn't work the way that you were supposed to work and you got fired or they cut you back your hours or you didn't get paid. Don't, don't cry about that. Um, this, is, this is just, this happens. While here, friends of mine, people that I know, people in this church, they will say, oh, this would happen to me. They laid me off. Why? Well, I mean, I showed up late twice. And then they laid me off. That's just not fair. It's like, you showed up late. I mean, at some level, like, you did something wrong. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, it's not that big of a deal. No, it is, right? Um, people watch you, um, empo- em- especially employers. They check your emails. They do all that. If you're just, if you're Facebooking all day long, that's not good. They could probably fire you for that. If you're Google chatting or whatever it is that you do, you're not supposed to do that at work. I mean, unless that's your job, which most of us, that's not our job. Um, he, he's saying if, if, if something, if you get fired or something bad happens because you caused it, God's not going, oh, I'm so glad you're suffering. No, he's saying, but if you, if you do it in a way, if you do it in a way that honors him, if you do it in a way that honors your employer and you, it honors the people who, your coworkers, and yet you still, you suffer unjustly in that, that, that God is saying, I pour grace on that, that there's favor on that. Um, here's why this is hard for us today. We get out of things quick. If there is something wrong with one job, I will run to the next job quick. The idea and the thought of being loyal to a company with someone I don't like doesn't make any sense. Most of us, especially the young congregation, have not been at the same place in the same job for longer than two years. Um, there, 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 there is a sense where when things are hard, we want to move on to something else because we believe it's our privilege. We are an entitlement um, people. Like we, we, that's not what Jesus says. And that's not what Peter says. 
He, he says that there are moments. I'm not saying you should just stick it in there. I'm not saying you should just stay there. I'm not saying that you should get beat up. Um, no, that, that's not, I don't think Peter is saying, nor is the Bible ever saying, that if you're in a position where you are absolutely just getting beat up and you can get out of it, stay in it because God loves that. No, if there's an opportunity for you to get out of it, get out of it. I'm just saying there is a commitment here that he has, even to saying when you don't like the people around you, that that is a witness. I just don't think sometimes that we understand that the, the, the position that we have as Christians is, not, is a position, position of privilege from God's kingdom, not looking for privilege in the kingdom in which we live. Hear me on this. The Jews, they loved Jesus because they thought Jesus was the Messiah and they're understanding he was, but the Messiah that they wanted was a Messiah that would change the rules, a Messiah that would change the laws, a Messiah that would change things to the way that they wanted. And so many of us as Christians right now, we do the same thing, especially when we come to a text like this, whether it be work or even talking about slavery. How come, how come Peter didn't just say, change the laws? Here's why. Um, laws never change hearts. Here, Christians, laws, they may shape the culture, they may restrain things, they never change the heart. Do you realize in 1863, is that, that's when the Emancipation Proclamation, we, we, we had that. In 1963, um, African-Americans were still being lynched. The, the law did not change people's hearts. Peter knew only the gospel can change the hearts. Peter did not call them to just change the law. Peter called them to follow Jesus. He said, you of all people should know that when you suffer, you should suffer mindful of Jesus. And there's a gracious thing for that. The, the best picture that I, that I have of this is, some of you know this, there's a story of, um, of Ruby. Um, and Ruby is, is, was a little girl during the civil rights movement when they, they took schools that were segregated. Um, she was living in Louisiana, and they, they integrated the schools. You, you've probably seen the picture. There's a, there's, a, there's a really famous picture of a girl walking, a little bit black girl, and then um, three uh, uh, federal law people, and they're walking into school. Now, the story of this is she goes to this school now. She's the only African-American girl going to this school. Uh, her parents, her dad doesn't want her to go. Her mom does want her to go. And the news is there. Everyone's there. People are lined up. They're screaming at her. They're yelling all types of racial slurs at her and these men have to walk her in the school every single day well this doctor in the north from harvard thought you know what this can't be good for her mentally so he's a he's a psychologist and so he goes down there and he wants to just just take notes on how this six seven year old girl is handling this and he goes one day he notes that she walks into the building and then she says something and then she continues to go um and and, and he wanted to know what did you say to them and he says little girl what did you say to them she goes i didn't say anything to him you know, I saw your lips move. I just couldn't hear what you said. He goes, no, I was just praying. And he goes, what? He goes, yeah, every day we pray on the way in the car, and I forgot to pray in the car, and I got here, and I remembered as I walked into school, I hadn't prayed, so I prayed. And this man asked this young girl, Ruby, what did you pray for? And she goes, well, I prayed that Jesus would give me protection so that I wouldn't be afraid, and then I prayed for, I prayed for them. And he says, why would you pray for them? And then she says in a very matter-of-fact way, on the cross, Jesus prayed, um, to his enemies, that the Father would forgive them. So every day when I walk into this school, or before I come to school, I pray for my enemies that God would forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, childlike faith of a little girl in much harsh conditions than you and I are in our, in our work, most of us. Um, at, at six and seven, she realized what matters most is not my education, what matters most is not even my job. What matters most is my Savior. That she, she goes back to the cross. That the only way that we can ever have a posture of civility, the only way that we can ever have grace through suffering is, is not by beating our chest, but it's always looking to Jesus. 
Sometimes I'm, I'm convinced that as Christians, we love a suffering Savior, but we ourselves don't want to suffer in the way that he suffered. Though he said, in this life, you will have tribulation. That, that this, young, this young girl, this six, seven-year-old girl at the time realized enough about the gospel to know that if Jesus suffered and that's the way that he prayed and lived for his enemies, I'm okay with suffering and I'm okay with praying for them because I follow a suffering Savior. P- Peter is trying to impress that upon our hearts and our lives. That our, the Christian life is not trying to say, how much comfort can I get? But the way the gospel is advanced is by us understanding that we're supposed to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's why we see the only power that we have does not just draw from, our, our, from the inside. But the power that we have is drawn from the cross, the very place that I began. Peter says this, verse 21, for this you have been called. Meaning, we have been called to suffering. We have been called to submit ourselves to the people around us. We have been called to serve those around us. Are there exceptions? Absolutely. But the reason why I'm not going to the exceptions is what we do is we take the exceptions, we place them over the rule. This is the principle, is that the spirit that we have within us is the call to be submissive, to seek the interests of those around us as greater than our. This is the call. This is the same language that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29. And there he says, to this, you have been called to believe in Jesus and to suffer with him. Meaning you've been called to have faith and to get beat up. I mean, that, that is, that, that's the sense that Peter, Peter says, it, or Paul says that in Philippians. And Peter says, to this, that's the type of life you've been called. And he explains this life by giving us an illustration of Christ. He says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Um, Peter says, here's the example. Don't forget who saved you. And don't forget the way in which you were saved. That if you're a Christian in this room, the way you became a Christian was by grace, a free gift of God that he gave you in Christ Jesus. The way that you grow as a Christian is by grace. And the grace, of, the, the grace that we have that grows us and our understanding of Jesus is that Christ takes and allows actively suffering in our life to make us more and more like Jesus. And so he says Jesus is the example, but Peter doesn't stop there. Because if Peter only said that Jesus was our example, that would be meaningless for us. Meaning if, if, if the Christianity was be like Jesus and act like Jesus, suffer like Jesus, um, all of us would fail and every single one of us would fall short. But he doesn't just say Jesus is the example of suffering, but he begins to go on. He's not only a beautiful example, but Jesus is also a beautiful savior. You see, you and I didn't need an example. You and I need a savior. Everyone in this room, we don't need better examples. We have a pure example. But what we need is the only savior in Jesus Christ. And here's what Peter says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Um, Peter says, now let's take your unjust boss. Let's take the slave owner. Um, let's, take, let's take the unjust president or governor or whoever it is. Let's take all of them and let's take your life and let's bring it to the cross. And what we realize is it's level playing ground. No matter how, how gross their sins are, your sin before the Lord is equally as gross. 
no, no matter how unjust they are, realize there's only one truly innocent person who was impeccable and who was sinless. And then when he went through the same thing you went through, but far worse, not only did he suffer with you, but he suffered for you because you yourself couldn't save yourself. By no means does God ever say your suffering doesn't matter. He's just saying his suffering mattered most because his suffering made sense of all the suffering that we have. I believe this is the reason why Peter is constantly saying, look at the hope in heaven. Look at the hope you have in heaven. Because if you don't have a lasting hope in heaven, knowing that our Savior will come and redeem all things, everything in this life will seem bleak. But if we understand that our Savior suffered alongside us, but also for us, because we ourselves were unjust, and he became our sin. That we ourselves, we were not the first people to be oppressed. Jesus himself was oppressed by for us. Because of our sin, that we were sinful and he was sinless and that he spoke not a word. And the life that Jesus is calling us to in response to that is to live that type of life, to have that sort of spirit upon us. He doesn't give us a bunch of instructions. He gives us the letter and the spirit of love in response to the love that he had for us. Amen. Peter wraps up this, this verse 25 and says this, by his wounds, we've been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As you live the life that we have um, here now for us in Redemption 10 it is having a spirit of love and a spirit of submission that we, in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we're, when we're wrong, we understand first and foremost that we wronged Jesus at some point. Um, that when we see people that are unjust, we understand that Jesus himself suffered unjustly for our behalf. Um, we understand that when we have people that are oppressing us or we see oppressive things, not that we don't act in it, but we draw our strength from ultimately looking at a savior himself who identifies with the oppressed and who reaches out his hand to those who are his enemy. And the way that we do that is always coming back to a picture of our faith, which is a bloody cross. Um, it's fitting for us to end there, um, to look at Jesus. Next week, we'll come back and look at the same Jesus in relation to women who submit to men who don't love God. Let's pray. Father, the call to discipleship that you call us on is, Father, is not an easy road. And yet, Jesus, you tell us you are the way. The call to discipleship, Father, to follow you, Lord, and pick up our own cross, Lord, um, seems distant. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us clarity in what that means to us, that you'd give us conviction, Lord, to repent to you and trust ourselves to you. God, I pray that you would give us a great deal of wisdom, Father, um, wisdom to know what are our battles and what are not our battles. Um, wisdom to understand, Father, that the position of submissiveness is not a position of just being quiet and weak, but trusting in you, Jesus. I'm having our strength from you. So, Father, I pray that we would always be a cross-shaped people that are centered around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the cross, which gives us something completely different to offer this world. Father, it's a different type of power, Lord, and it's a different um, type of confidence, and it's a different type of life. And so, God, we ask that your spirit would give us wisdom for it, uh, give us clarity. God, I pray that we would be men and women, Lord, who, who in our own lives embody the very scars of Jesus Christ. God, help us to be faithful and committed um, 
committed to you in every area of our life, um, caring for you and caring for those around us. And Father, help us with our language, help us with our posture, help us with the way that we carry ourselves. So in us, Lord, that the world around us, Father, would see you and it would put to silence um, any things that are inaccurate about Jesus or Christianity. Father, we know that you grow your church and you strengthen your church. And so we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.